Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 8. If you are checking in the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1096. 1096 for Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live fear in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen 
is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we are so thankful that you have made it possible for us to be adopted as sons, as children of God. We just thank you that for the redemption provided by your son Jesus in his resurrection to give us hope. And Father, we just pray that this morning as Pastor Mark comes to bring us the word, you'll give him the words that you would have him say that we need to hear uh, as he exposes, exposits the word of God. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ron. I need your help. Don't tell my wife that I brought one of her glasses to church. Oh, too late. <laughs> I don't know about you. Well, yes, I actually do know uh, this about you. We all need some encouragement this morning. We all need some hope meant this morning. We all know need some faith meant this morning. And yes, as a non-English major, I do know that those are, last two aren't real words, but they should be. That which makes faith, that which makes hope, that which makes encouragement. 
So how about this? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free. Set you free. Set us free, if we are in Christ, from the law of sin and death. These first two verses from Paul's letter to the church and its local expression in, verse, in chapter 8, and beginning, of course, with the church to which he wrote this letter, the church at Rome in his place and time, and also by faith extending all, exp- extending all the way to us in the church known as Bethesda in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in our place and time. These are of the most profound most hopeful, most helpful, and most encouraging in the Bible. Here in just two verses is the gospel and the Christian life in summary and living color. In our NIV Pew Bibles, it's 34 words. In the Greek New Testament, it's just 28 words, and they are some of the most important and revealing verses in the whole Bible. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus lived a perfectly righteous and holy life. This is why Jesus came teaching us who God is and what he is like and modeling for us what life with him could be and should be. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus was raised. This is why he prays for us today that we might live free from the shame of condemnation and free of the legal consequences of sin and death. If we found ourselves in a pinch, if we needed the most concise, shortest, quickest expression of the gospel in the Christian life, either for ourselves or for others, we could hardly do better than there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's 12 words, by the way. Even so, this is essentially theology and not practice. It's thinking and believing, not quite living. We have here the glorious truth of the gospel and of the Christian life, well-lived and stated plainly, but we need to know how this lofty, highly biblical Christian theological summary applies to our lives, to our families, to our ministries, to our future. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Wow, that's fantastic. Now what? Turns out, that's a very good question, and it's one we'll we'll ask God the Holy Spirit to answer for us over the next few weeks. But this morning, I believe he simply wants us to rest in the realities of no condemnation, only freedom, and future glory. 
to look forward to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, one might say, future glory? Brother, I'm just trying to get through the week. Another might say, future glory? I'm just trying to get through the day. Still another, perhaps a little bit more honest, might say, future glory, brother, I'm just trying to get through this worship service and this sermon you're giving. What's this future glory thing? So very quickly, before we get lost in the weeds five minutes in and before we dismiss the relevance of future glory to the gospel, to the Christian life, to getting through the week, the day, and more immediately even this worship service and yes, this sermon, I want to ask you to look at Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 in our NIV Pew Bible. Go ahead and find it. Romans chapter 8 in our Pew Bible. And I want you to look at the heading that's just above verse 1 of chapter 8 in Romans. What does it say? Somebody call it out. Life through the Spirit. Life through the Spirit. That's right. And that is the overall context and the overall message of Romans 8. Romans 8 is all about the underlying foundation of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and intercession. We heard a little bit of that in Ron's reading earlier. The saving, energizing, and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and of the believing church, and the ultimate result of persevering by faith and hope by the Spirit in Christ Jesus is future glory. In other words, the outcome of the life lived through the Spirit is future glory. So now I want to ask you to look at Romans 8, verse 18 in our NIV Pew Bible and call out that heading. Go ahead. What does it say? Future glory, right? Future glory. Now, as we've noted before, these headings are inserted by the editors to help Bible readers organize in our minds the section in the larger context of the book and chapter in which it occurs, so not part of the revealed text. And I don't always agree with the editor's choices, but life in the spirit and future glory are exactly right. The massive point of living truth being made in Romans chapter 8 and the point of this sermon series is that this clear vision, this divine promise of future glory should compel us compel us forward into living out the gospel, persevering in faith and hope by the Spirit, together until the coming of that great day, and nothing and no one can stop it coming. It's coming. So before we go any further, let's look at the central truth of our message for this morning. It's there in your bulletin. I made reference to it, although I didn't read it earlier. Here it is. Jesus Christ has come and gone. So we talked last week at length about Jesus ascending to the Father, and he is now, right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for the saints, which is us. If we are in Christ, that's us. The people of God, that's us. So Jesus Christ has come and gone to adopt bring glory to, and to save God's children, to redeem our physical bodies, and restore the whole of creation in hope by the Spirit forever. 
Now, I don't know how discouraged and depressed we have to be before we understand and respond to that glorious statement of the promises of God in Christ, but I hope we're not that despairing and that discouraged. That is good news. Now I'd like to read our text for this morning, which is Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. Through 23. I know Ron just read it, but let's focus in on this, these few verses. Paul writing here by the Holy Spirit to the church at Rome, as well as to the church at Bethesda. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, the NIV has, if you have an ESV, it says to us, and the reason is the proposition, or the preposition there, not the proposition, but the preposition there is pros, which means into. So it literally reads this way. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed into us. That's what it says in the Greek text. So nobody can make sense of that, and so they usually choose one or the other, either in <laughs> or to. Um, both are good. Uh, the text actually says into. Verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The title of this morning's message is Groaning Inwardly, Together, In Hope, by the Spirit. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for what you're doing for us still in Christ. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here among us and indeed in us. And we ask him, you dear Holy Spirit, to speak to us this morning. Speak to us of your love, your grace, your, your perseverance with us, even as we persevere in faith and hope. We, we thank you so much for what you've done on our behalf and we pray that you would continue to do your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years before my Parkinson's diagnosis in October 2020, both my family and I began to notice some things that indicated changes in my physical abilities. Honestly, we had no idea that what I was experiencing, or at least I didn't, and what my family was ex experiencing by extension wasn't normal aging or the result of bad army knees causing my walking gait to become very ploddy, 
I know that's not a word either, but I made it up. It should be. Looking back, one of the first things I noticed was it became difficult to shoot a basketball. Abby and I would shoot around at practice, and it became increasingly unlikely that I'd even be able to get the ball up and out to the basket. It was coming up way short every time, and I didn't understand what was going on. It was a Herculean effort to, to take a 15-foot jump shot, and I didn't understand that because that, that's pretty standard fare for a basketball player. Another thing we all noticed was I became very slow getting through airport security lines. I can't imagine many more multitask events than, than getting through airport security lines. Turns out Parkinson's disease tends to render its sufferers increasingly single-task-at-a-time people. Increasingly, we can only focus on a few and then eventually only one thing. Belt. Shoes. Laptop. Pockets. There's the problem. Mo, the magnificent bearded dragon. Handgun. Oh, sorry, I'm, not, I'm kidding about that. But it became literally painfully slow, both for, for, for me, but also my family, and especially for the people who were behind me. And I didn't know what was going on, neither did my family. They just thought I'd put too much stuff in my pockets, which maybe was true also anyway. But um, we didn't know what was going on. Also, typing which is a pretty basic activity for a preacher, pastor person, was becoming increasingly slow, difficult, and even painful. And more generally, my hands weren't working properly. In a, I don't want to get too graphic here, but in a shower, I'd rinse out my washcloth, and I'd hold my washcloth up here to the, to the spout, and this thumb and hand started to quiver. Um, and it still does when I, when I do that. Well, who knew? Well, my neurologist for one, Neil Creighton for another, he saw it long before I did. My balance, which had always been excellent, started becoming an issue, such that riding a bicycle became a hazardous activity for all in my area, especially for the trees. And actually, one of the first indicators, looking back now, was my inability to dance at Ashley's 2018 high school graduation celebration. I know it'll be hard to believe, but I, I once loved to dance and was, you know, pretty good at it. But that night, I couldn't, I couldn't feel the music for the first time ever since I was like in seventh grade. Um, I didn't know what that was about. At the time, I had no idea what was going on. I remember thinking, is this also an effect of getting older? Then I reasoned, surely not. Old people dance all the time on TV. It surely is not a function of getting older. In any case, that's just a little bit of my story from over the last few years. I love my wife and my girls, and I appreciate how they've cared about me and even cared for me, sometimes with a kick in the shorts or a refusal to tie my shoes. Our first meeting with the neurologist, he said, don't tie his shoes. Make him do it himself. And I have, and she has. But the larger point made in our text would be that we all suffer. I want you to look at the person to your right. 
Go ahead, look at, the, look at the person to your right. That person is suffering too. Now look to your left. That person is suffering too, as is the person or persons in front of you and behind you and over the live stream. None of us in the Christian community are alone, or at least we don't need to be. We are all in need and we are all needy. Well, with that as background and introduction, let's look at the text. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed into us. I'd like for us to think about this. I know my point is longer than the actual verse, um, but it says a whole lot in those very few words. So I'd like to, us to think about this uh, in this way. Suffering in this life on this earth, which is common to all human beings and especially Christian human beings, Jesus promised so, promises so, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world, but that the suffering part is ours, the first half of that saying. Suffering in this life on this earth will be replaced by a future glory that will render any and all human suffering irrelevant and even, even useful in God's sovereign goodness. Now, I don't want anyone to hear me saying that your suffering does not matter. That your suffering is nothing. That's not what this means. This means that once we get into the light of glory, we will look back and the glory that we experience, the glory that we share, the glory that we see will completely obliterate the pain and the difficulty and the weight of the suffering we carried around in this life on this earth. I consider that our present sufferings, present sufferings, that's, that's now, that's today, that's in this life on this earth, our present sufferings are here granted, right, aren't they? They're, they're assumed. They're common. We all have them. And that doesn't mean that your suffering is not as much as my suffering or my suffering is, isn't, isn't as much as yours or, or not, doesn't matter as much. That's, none of those things are true. He's not comparing your suffering to my suffering or your suffering to, to some other human being's suffering in this life. He's comparing all of our suffering to what we will exchange for as common in eternity. That's the proper comparison. And he's encouraging these dear believers at the church in Rome to carry on, to persevere in faith, in hope, by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there is nothing to compare in this life on this earth with eternity approaching. And this should give us an incentive. This should give us a, a, a motivation to continue to carry on 
and to bear our suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit until he comes or until we go, whichever comes first. And we, we never know which it will be. Our present sufferings are not worth compare, comparing with the glory that will be revealed into us. I, I just want to just say a word about this into because it's, it's fascinated me for many years why I haven't found a translation, and I haven't seen every translation, I'm sure, but I haven't found a translation that actually translates the preposition, which is into here, into us. Um, in us is one thing. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is in us. We can think about that. Uh, we can think about to us. Okay, it's given to us. Glory is given to us. But glory that is revealed into us. The only thing I can compare it to and the only thing I can really kind of hang my hat on uh, and, and don't take this to the, you know, to the house because um, I, I'm just I'm speculating here. So it's dangerous when we do that. But into, revealed into us, um, kind of sounds like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, does it not? We're never going to be Jesus, but we are in some way going to be like Jesus. And what if we experience in that time, in that day, on the other side of glory, we experience something like becoming like Jesus, the glory revealed into us. I don't know. I do think that the Lord cho chose his prepositions intentionally. I do think that he chose all of his words intentionally. We have to deal with the words that he gave us uh, as opposed to the words that would have been perhaps easier for us to understand or, or more palatable to us. Um, and, and so this one, this, this preposition, I don't want to make too much of it, but it just, it, it has fascinated me um, for all the years that I've been processing Romans chapter 8. And the, and, and the point here, taking the whole chapter in view, taking the whole book in view, taking the whole Bible in view, is that suffering in this life on this earth which is common to all human beings, and especially for Christian human beings, that suffering will be replaced by a future glory. An eager expectation, oh, sorry, that's, a, that's verse 19, the glory that will be revealed in us, a future glory that will render any and all human suffering irrelevant and even useful in God's sovereign goodness. It's the second thing in verses 19 and 22. Let's think of it this way. Since the fall of humanity, the whole of creation has groaned under the weight of sin's corrupting influence, waiting for our creator to reveal and redeem his children. This also should encourage us. We, we are not alone in our groaning. In fact, all creation is groaning. In fact, we are part of that creation and we're groaning. So whether it's human groaning or it's the groaning of the mountains or the, uh, or the seas or, or the sea creatures or bearded dragons, the groaning is a result of sin and, and sin's corrupting influence on, on creation and it causes us to groan. So this groaning 
is natural. And what I mean by that is natural. It comes with our frail, fragile, material bodies because of sin. Verse, 19, verse 20, verse 19. The creation. So whenever we talk about creation, we think about sun, moon, and stars, and, and they're part of the creation, but so is the earth, so are we. So is the church. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people. We are all created. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. <clears throat> Here, I don't necessarily think that sons means only male-type people. Uh, there are a few places it probably does mean male-type people, but here I think it's human beings. Um, we could say sons and daughters, although that's not what the text says. The text says the sons, but I think, I think here in Romans chapter 8, a reference to sons is a reference to the reality that all of us have gone from being outcast sinners as related to the, the kingdom to born again, adopted children of God. And all of us have the privilege and the honor of firstborn sons. I think that's the point in Romans chapter eight. Um, as you know, I'm a complementarian. complementarian. <clears throat> I sometimes say a soft complementarian. Um, but uh, but I, I don't believe this means male-type people only to be revealed. I think this is all of us, God's people, God's children. <clears throat> Another thing that Parkinson's does is changes one's voice, and it's happening. And so I don't know where this is going. My sister asked me shortly after the diagnosis, is it going to take your voice away? And I said, it, it may. I don't know. It happens. Um, but it's certainly happening now. Verse 20, for the creation, all of the creation of God was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So this is one of those controversial places in scripture where there's the question who subjected creation to futility. Who was it who subjected it? There are really three possible options. One is, well, and perhaps the most obvious, Adam. When Adam sinned, Adam in his sin subjected the rest of creation because God said he pronounced a curse on not only Adam but on the whole creation because of Adam's sin. So it was Adam who subjected it to futility. A second possible option, which makes some sense to most people, the devil subjected the creation to futility. He tempted Adam and he drew Adam into sin and Jesus calls him the God of this world um, and he's the one who subjected creation to futility. Um, the third option and the one that I believe is that God subjected the creation to futility as part of his judgment. And I agree with John Piper, it's, it's got to be God because only God could do that in hope. Adam couldn't subject creation 
to futility in hope. The devil couldn't subject creation to futility in hope. Only God could subject creation to futility or frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's only the work of God. That work does not belong to anyone else. No one else can accomplish that work. God accomplished that work and will accomplish that work in Christ in the last days. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So since the fall of humanity, the whole of creation has groaned under the weight of sin's corrupting influence, waiting for our creator to reveal and redeem his children. Finally, number three and last, groaning inwardly, which is what we all are doing at some level, in some way, to some extent, groaning inwardly is the natural state and condition of all human beings. Even those who've been saved by Jesus's redeeming blood and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, we are not given an exemption to these things. And this is our primary uh, complaint, objection to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We are not promised heaven today. This is not heaven. This is a corrupted earth, and we are not there yet. Um, and we still groan inwardly, and it is still our natural state and condition of all human beings who are, who are still embodied in frail and um, fallen flesh and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. But we who are children of God wait patiently in faith and hope for him. Verse 23 and following. Not only so, not only does the whole of creation groan as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time, but not only so, but, but we ourselves, you see, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. See, we're not exempted from pain and suffering and death as God's people. I mean, it'd be great, but if that were true, we'd just be transported up like Scotty does on the Enterprise and Star Trek, right? Save, beam me up, Lord. I'm ready to go. There would be no reason for me to stay or you. That's not our situation. Our situation is as long as we are embodied in these less than glorified bodies, in these imperfect, sinful, sin-laden, um, fragile bodies, weak and wasting away, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Again, I take this to mean not just male-type people. I take this to mean God's children, in this case, the redemption of our bodies. Yes, that's our physical bodies. Now, I'll probably get myself into trouble, and I'm almost done here, but I'll probably get myself in trouble, but one of the great expressions of Christian hope in death is that we bury our people with their bodies in the grave. 
This is relevant to this text. I don't speak to this very often, and I certainly don't speak to this when we're conducting a funeral for someone. But I just want you to think about this. Just about every other religion, just about every other tradition burns the bodies of their people. Almost all of them. Except the big three, Islam, Judaism, and, and now Christianity-ish. Um, just think about it. And here it makes a reference, and I know, I know, I know the, the arguments. Well, if somebody gets burnt in a house fire, what's the difference there? That, the rule is not the, I'm sorry, the exception is not the rule. What is he teaching here? That the burial of a Christian body is an expression, a declaration of hope of resurrection. And I'm not saying that God can't do that through dust that's left behind in ashes. He did it once. <laughs> he can do it again. But it, it is a relevant topic to this truth that's being, spoke, that's being revealed to us. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Groaning inwardly is the natural state and condition of all human beings, even those who have been saved by Jesus' redeeming blood and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. But we are, who are God's children wait patiently in faith and hope for him. Amen. Groaning inwardly, together, in faith and hope in Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for these, your words. I pray that I didn't add anything to them or take anything away from them. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to work with us and work through us and even on that last, that last little point about Christian burial, Lord, uh, we can disagree. We, we can uh, practice differently and still be brothers and sisters and still be uh, your people and still be a church and still work together. And uh, these are not decisions that are made by a hierarchical council, but these are decisions that are made by families. And it's their decision to make, and it's good, right, and true. But we are responsible to... Uh, reflect issues, I'll say, that are connected to your word, that, that issue from your word, that are impacted by your word. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us, each one of us, would take your word as counsel. We'll take your word as truth. We'll take your word as life. Thank you for the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the living word, the word made flesh, the embodied word of God who gave himself up for us and who was raised again on the third day by your Holy Spirit and who now intercedes for us. We thank you for him and we pray that we would live honorably to him. And for each person who is here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would 
allow each of us to hear and to respond in precisely the way that you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So our friend, Hank Finlayson, we were at a funeral and we went to the grave site and we came, we were walking back. It was um, over here at Chapel Lawn. He said, Mark, what do you think about this topic of burial or cremation? And I said, well, Hank, first of all, I think it's a family decision. Secondly, I think that it's a matter of conscience. And thirdly, I think the Bible would indicate that it would tend toward burial rather than cremation. He said, well, the interesting thing about it is I buried my wife, but I'm being cremated. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you're cutting it right down the middle. And he said, what do you really think? And I said, I, I, I want to be buried and I want to bury my family, uh, but I'm not going to you know, die on that hill um, in the church. And he looked at me and he said, well, I would hope not, <laughs> which is one of the most direct things I've ever heard Hank, Hank ever say, because he was, I think he was born to be a diplomat, but he had strong convictions uh, concerning uh, the word of God and the gospel. Here's what I want us to hear as we're leaving today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, which is 20, verse 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to be greatly, we who have fled take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our high priest. Help us to worship you truly. Help us to worship you um, fully. Help us uh, until that day to, rep to represent you well in our place and time on this earth. Thank you for your word, Lord, and help us to groan inwardly well. Not complaining, uh, but joyfully praising you and encouraging each other. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.